You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. John Scalzi is the author of the Old Man's War novels, including The Old Man's War, The Ghost Brigades, The Last Colony. He wrote the Lock-In series, including Lock-In and Head On, Agent to the Stars, Red Shirts. He wrote the Dispatcher novels, including The Dispatcher, Travel by Bullet, and Murder by Other Means. His newest book is The Kaiju Preservation Society. Thank you for joining me, John. Sure, good to be here. I don't know about you, but I have a real sentimental soft spot for kaiju movies. When I was a kid, I spent many an afternoon watching Gargantua. And I especially remember a movie called Monster Island that had the, like a little baby Godzilla that was cute as a button. That I saw <laughs> many a times on KTTV Channel mm-hmm. 11. Los Angeles. Did you have a similar experience as a kid? That, in fact, I grew up in the same area you did, so I remember those monster movies. You know, not only KTTV, uh, but also Channel Seven would have the three o'clock movie, uh, and they would do a whole bunch of stuff. Channel Nine, I think, also did monster movies. Um, so we had quite, <laughs> quite the palette of kaiju. Uh, growing up, and uh, and of course, you know, I watched them all. So it's one of those things that I think of a certain generation uh, of people, particularly like Gen Xers, where you're like at home, you're waiting for your parents to show up. You've got your, you know, you got your Kool Aid and your, you know, your M and M's, and you're just, you know, watching Godzilla destroy some part of Japan. It's uh, it's pretty great. You know. One of the things I liked about this book was how much fun it was. It was mm-hmm. fun on every level. Every sentence was fun to read. You write with a really amazingly well-honed sense of humor. The plot was fun. The character interactions were fun. The world building was fun. This was just, un- I was about to say a movie, but a novel that was wall-to-wall fun. And I'm that's something I've detected throughout all of your writing. So speak a little bit about the importance of writing fun and having fun while you write. Well, I mean, honestly, I mean, to, to talk about the writing first, if I'm not enjoying what I'm writing, why would anybody who read it, who reads it, uh, be having fun with it either? I mean, I think it's really uh, kind of important that you get the sense that the writer of the stuff that you are reading is having some sort of emotional reaction to the stuff they are putting on the page. And for me, uh, particularly with Kaiju, which was coming after a, a kind of a rough patch um, yeah, for me uh, in terms of creativity and just sort of dealing with life, because it was in the aftermath of 2020, um, just having fun just seemed like a a good thing in and of itself. And with me also, the other thing is, is quite honestly, um, I, I write for people. I don't just write, you know, difficult prose in my little hovel. I, I write for attention. I have an ego. Uh, and, uh, beyond that, um, I am super easily bored with my own writing. Um, so, you know, quite honestly, if I just go on and on and on about something, eventually the editor up in my head is like, what are you doing? I am so bored. Please stop. Uh, and I think that's actually important, you know, to have that just really vicious, easily bored voice in my head. It's like, what are you doing? Just get to the story. Where's my explosion? Where's my sarcasm? Let's go. Um, so for me, that's, I think that obviously comes through, I think in the writing as well. You know, there's a a set of books that begin around 2017 and I'm Mm -hmm. thinking with the the dispatcher novels. Sure. 
And there's three books there, and they're all really fun and have a great premise. And this Kaiju Preservation Society also. And what I find interesting is that in them, though they're set in these, you know, different worlds from ours, Kaiju Preservation Society spends most of its time in a really interesting world. Nonetheless, it's quite clear they're about the present. <laughs> and yeah. I, I think that that is really interesting because on one hand, they're not direct satires of the present in, in all the writing and the storytelling is all about the story itself. And that, and that makes them extra fun. Yeah. Nonetheless, as you read them, you think, oh, my God, our world is, is like the, the, the worst in these science fiction novels. I mean, I don't know that I would say it's it's the worst, but it's certainly it's certainly the one that's the most mundane, right? And I find that uh, for me, when I'm writing science fiction, um, I mean, if I'm writing like Old Men's War, the interdependency series, uh, I'm so far ahead uh, in the timeline, you know, 400, 500, 1,000 years forward that you can pretty much do anything you want to do. But if you're writing contemporary science fiction that's supposed to be taking place more or less in the time frame that that people are reading it, um, then you kind of have to reflect the world as it is, even if you are doing that one big change that happens in Kaiju, for example, or in the Dispatcher uh, books or even the Lock-In books. Um, but they, because people you know, people are not going to be able to check your math if you posit a world a thousand years in the future. But if you're talking about now, people are like, that's not the way it works. This is not the world that we've been living in. What what are you trying to pull on me? It's that suspension of disbelief. So you have to you have to make that um, sort, sort of work. And I also just think it's fun. I like to think of the idea of this is the world that you know, except for that one big thing and that one big thing that has changed has cascading consequences that changes the world uh, in kind of interesting uh, and fascinating ways. With The Dispatcher, um, the series, the big change is if you try to murder someone, um, they come back after you've killed them. Uh, and and boy, are they boy, are they mad at you. Uh, but also, you know, but what what develops from that? You can't just murder people like you used to. Uh, you know, war would change. Uh, how people thrill seek would change. All these things would change. Uh, and being able to ring those changes within the context of the story um, is uh, a lot of fun to do. You know, I, it's interesting to think of uh, this Kaiju Preservation Society, because as I was reading it, I'm thinking, this is some absolutely awesome world building. This this world of the kaiju you built, it's just really smart, and it's constantly surprising. Mm -hmm. And and I get to the end of the book, and I think, my God, all this wild world building took place while I was watching MSNBC and reading CNN. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, talk about this is a, a kind of a secret history kind of novel that there's something that's gone on in history that most of us just don't know about, whether it's vampires or wolves, you know, the the, yeah. uh, the Enrise version or in your case, the giant monsters. So the the concept behind this novel is super fabulous. <laughs> so explain it a little bit to us. I mean, what it comes down to is when we think of kaiju, right, generally speaking, um, both in terms of, uh, you know, starting with the 1954 Godzilla moving on, um, it's always about the kaiju come, the kaiju have arrived here, right, from wherever they came, either from under the ocean or in the case of Pacific Rim, a uh, dimensional hole, you know, or whatever. They have come to us and, and you know, our world is not compatible with 300 foot, you know, laser wielding creatures. Um, so uh, for me, you know, it was sort of obvious. What's the flip side of that is, well, what sort of world is congenial to a kaiju sized uh, creature? What would be, instead of 
them coming through to us and all the consequences of that, because that's been done over and over and over and over. What if we went and visited their world? What if we were the invaders, so to speak? And what would our responsibilities be? What would we be doing while we were there? What kind of world would that be? And so when you start thinking about, you know, oh, it's the kaiju world, not the human world, um, then you start having to build that ecosystem around the kaiju. I mean, they are, because they're 300 feet tall, you know, they are the most apex of the apex predators, right? And and, and the ecosystem would absolutely have to uh, develop around them. And so, and I think that this is kind of the key, right? You take an absurd premise, which is 300 foot monsters, which everybody knows is an absurd premise, right? But then you go, okay, now that I have this absurd premise, how can I build in such a way that at the end of the day, when you look around at the world building, you're like, oh, no, I can see how you got here, right? Um, and so, and I think that's really fun. It's a thing that science fiction in particular, and also fantasy, but, uh, you know, speculative fiction gets to do that so many other genres don't, right? Um, take an inherently bizarre uh, concept, you know, the, you know, the kaiju, or in the case of, of Red Shirts, which is another book that was not dissimilar about this, uh, the idea that people discover that they are bit players uh, in their own lives, and how are they going to, you know, avoid being killed just for the sake of drama, or, you know, any of these sorts of things, or, or with the dispatcher as well, um, and how do you build it out so that when people look at the world, they're like, I see what you're doing, and this world makes sense. You're not just plopping these monsters into the middle of it. You're not just plopping the ability to come back after death into the middle of it. You have built out the consequences. And the consequences are what makes science fiction science fiction. It, it's the literature of consequences. I had never thought of it that way, but that that is exactly true. <laughs> you know, one of the things that also just permeates all your books is your voice. You just write uh -huh. in such a fun voice. The prose itself is fun. And there are many places in this book where I'm reading the book and listening with headphones. And I can imagine it must not have been a whole lot of fun to be in the room with me because every like 10 minutes or so, I just start cackling. And there were sentences in this book that I had to read like four, five, six times before they, I didn't just like snort in hilarious laughter. And that is such an enjoyable thing. And I, it struck me, especially with one sentence, which uses words we can't use on radio, uh, <laughs> that, you know, there's an incredible amount of skill that goes into that. Humor is very difficult, isn't it? How, do you have any insights as to how you achieve that? I, you know, part of it is, um, part of it is, I think, just honestly, it's one of the gifts that I get, right? Like, I think I believe every writer um, gets a couple of gifts in the sense of the things that they can do reasonably well, um, kind of just as part of their own writing makeup. Um, like some people do description incredibly well, right? Which is a skill I'm envious of. I can't do description to save my life, you know, or... Uh, you know, that they, they can plot a mystery um, that is so intricate that you literally can't see it coming until it gets revealed, which, again, is not a skill that I have. But the two skills that I think that uh, I sort of got for free are humor um, and dialogue, which is great because those are two very complementary small e um, fields. Um, so for me, I think a lot of it's just inherent in my personality. I'm a sarcastic dude. So, uh, that helps. That said, I think the other thing that helps is I came from outside of science fiction, right? Um, like I, my very first science fiction convention was after I sold old man's war, right? I didn't grow up in science fiction while I read science fiction. It was not, you know, my, only or even primary reading material growing up. I read a lot of humorists. I read a lot of newspaper columnists. I watched a lot of movies because I was a film critic, professional film critic for a number of years. Um, and so uh, in many ways, um, a lot of my story um, 
story uh, development came out of you know film and humor to begin with. So that when I started writing um, things like using dialogue to explain what was going on in the scene, which is what they do in film, or using humor to keep people moving forward um, was stuff that I was familiar with from the reading and from my own professional life um, so that it uh, came in handy when it came time to writing. Now, I do think, again, there has to be some natural facility. There are lots of people we know who are very, very fine writers, um, who, but who aren't particularly funny. And uh, when they attempt humor, it's always kind of like, oh, I see what you're trying to do, uh, but it's not, it's, it's not quite working. And that's fine. Like I said, there are lots of things that writers do um, that I, I have a very difficult time doing. Um, so, I, so I get it. Um, but in this particular case, um, both by you know, training and inclination and just my own you know, sort of mental makeup, uh, humor is something that comes easy to me. Now, there is a flip side to this, of course, which is um, that if you don't like my humor, because humor is uh, very sort of idiosyncratic, right? And But if you don't like my humor, um, then I am one of the most annoying writers that you will ever meet. I mean, I get this in the in, in the reviews all the time. The one star reviews are are all. Why does he think he is funny? He is not funny. What what? Why does he do this? It's awful. Someone make him stop. And I'm like, I get it because uh, you know because humor is very very specific. And unlike, for example, um, you know drama, which fails gracefully. So even if you don't feel everything about uh, a dramatic moment you will still, it will still work up to a certain point. Uh, humor just crashes. You either think something's funny or you don't. And if you don't think it's funny, um, I think people get angry. It's like, why did you promise me a joke and give me this? You are awful. And you flip a table and you, and you go off. So uh, that is the flip side, uh, no pun intended, of being a funny guy. Because a lot of people will just be like, no, you're not funny. You're just annoying. And I'm like, fair. One thing I was thinking as I read this book, and in particular the second and third Dispatcher novels, is mm -hmm. that they are excellent. I've read a few novels now that are set in you know the the post twenty sixteen election years, and mm -hmm. these are novels that speak to that well. I mean, it's not the main point of essentially of either novel, although it's big part but I think they speak to those times really well and part of it is the the plot design and part of it's just the the dialogue and what's happening in the background so could you talk to that a little bit sure I mean again uh uh in all these books that I write that are taking place in sort of contemporary time um you have to you have to acknowledge that that the world exists, right? You have to acknowledge that things have happened in this world uh, that um, that are just unavoidable. Um, you know, the election of 2016, the election of 2020, uh, the fact that we had a pandemic, uh, you know, all of these things that are going on. Um, you know, this the it's that old saying of, uh, you know, science fiction is often about the future, but it's being written now, right? It's being written now, so the writer is going to be influenced by events. The readership is going to be influenced by events. Um, and whether you like it or not, the world is the world is going to intrude. And so the question becomes, are you going to fight the fact that you live in 2016 or 2017 or 2023, as, as the case may be now, um, and just try to pretend that the world is not weighing down on you? Uh, and not weighing down on your readers, or are you just going to accept that that's part of the background radiation of your story building and your world building? And I think for me, particularly when I'm writing uh, books that are meant to be taking place in a contemporary time, you just have to accept that that's, that that's part of it. In both the Kaiju Preservation Society and the most recent Dispatcher installment, uh, you know, Travel by Bullet, both of those are uh, acknowledge that there has been a pandemic, right? Like Kaiju solidly, solidly takes place between March 2020 and March 2021, whereas, and the dispatcher 
takes place in an unspecified time just immediately after a pandemic. Um, and part of that is just that when people read that, you don't dwell on it, but they're like, oh yeah, no, we get that this is, you know, that there's going to be residue uh, from these sorts of, of uh, you know, world-busting events. Um, and then they just sort of uh, move forward to it. I don't think it's, uh, again, uh, unless it's very specific to the plot, it's not something that you need to dwell on. You don't need someone to stop and get on a soapbox and rant about, you know, whatever is going on in the world at the moment. Um, but that world-building is actually critical. In the case of both Kaiju uh, and um, the most recent dispatcher installment, there's also um, some less than charitable opinions about billionaires uh, because we're, we're having a billionaire moment. Uh, I was particularly pleased. Um, I don't know that pleased is the right word. I really want to be very careful about that. But um, travel, travel by Bullet um, had some very specific things to say about uh, crypto and Bitcoin and all this sort of stuff. And it came out in audio right around it, almost exactly the same time um, that um, all the crypto and all the Bitcoin was crashing. And, you know, all those, you know, 30 year old geniuses who were building these exchanges were being, you know, discovered to be basically frauds. And I don't want to take credit for being like, yes, I timed that perfectly. But because I was existing in the world and I incorporated those elements in, when the collapse of those, uh, you know, uh, crypto, um, you know, uh, crypto accounts sort of just happened, uh, the the book became super timely. So I was like, oh, well, that that certainly worked in my favor. Not for them; they're going to prison. But for me, it was great. In retrospect, they call it cryptocurrency. You know, that was like you know I mean, a it's giant. Right there. Red it's right there. <laughs> What are you? What are you? What are you thinking? Why? Why would you do? Why would you put your money there? And the answer is, of course, um, people are like, because it's a get-rich-quick scheme. Everybody wants to do the thing that doesn't actually require them to do effort. And there's always going to be like enough people who anecdotally manage to make money off of it that everybody else just thinks, well, that could happen to me. Um, yeah, always looking for the shortcut um is uh is a human uh nature sort of thing and i get it you know uh as i've been saying about you know all the people using chat gpt to write these terrible stories that they're flooding to the uh into the uh, short fiction markets at the moment uh i mean if i could just write a computer program that would write me a, a scalzy novel and all i had to do after that was um spend the money that i got from it uh, i mean i would be happy too but it's it's always more complicated than that, isn't it? And that's and that's where the fun is in terms of being a writer. Now, uh, the Kaiju Preservation Society starts out with Jamie Gray. He has a a bad job, <laughs> and, and that is rapidly revealed to us. Um, and I think you capture that kind of that those tech jobs uh, quite well. Is that how much experience do you do you have in that world? I would imagine you have some. Well, I was uh, I was actually worked at America Online in the uh, in oh the mid nineties. Oh my! Back God. back in back in the day, back Jurassic the day, Times. <laughs> Jurassic Times. You you young people don't remember, but we had to stick a phone receiver onto a modem. Um, but I, I worked at from uh, ninety six to ninety eight uh, in the in the building, and then as a uh, freelance contractor after that um, for a number of years. Um, so that was very much the first wave of you know tech, and so I got to come in as that was rising, experience the first tech bubble, um, and then uh, in the early 20, uh, 20, uh, you know, 2000s, I was also a consultant for a number of tech companies with writing and other things. Um, so I had a, a lot of front row seat with uh, with the development of that. Um, and then, of course, beyond that, uh, I know lots of people who are, are in tech now. Um, there are lots of people who, uh, you know, 
from my time at AOL who have then gone on, uh, other you know people that I've met along the way. Um, so it's a world that is that is actually um, familiar to me. Uh, the dynamic of the personalities and everything else has not changed substantially um, since the days uh, of AOL. I mean, I came into AOL. Um, and it was like just kind of the coolest place ever. There was, you know, it was like graduate school, but people were awesome. And, you know, there was a lot of pressure, but we were all cool and we were all paper millionaires because we had stock uh, and all of that sort of stuff. Um, so um, that dynamic continues to to move forward. In addition to that, I mean, I also um, did a lot of stuff in finance. I had my very first book was a finance book. I consulted with financial uh, companies uh, and wrote financial newsletters and so on and so forth. Because and so again, that was another field um, that I that I was comfortable with, uh, both kind of looking into and is saying. Um, the you know the simple fact of the matter is you know there are certain fields in every generation that are sexy uh, and tech and uh, financial services are the sexy ones because there's so much money involved. And as soon as you hook into that, uh, then things, you know, get kind of kind of crazy. So um, anything that I'm writing is, is to that extent, is at least vaguely uh, related to either my own experiences or the experiences of, of people I know in the tech world and the financial services world. Jamie, uh, it's not too much of a spoiler to say he, he finds a new job and, and mm. I, this is involves being in the kaiju world and I think one of the things you did and you spoke about this but you do it quite brilliantly I thought was to make all of this stuff that can't be real seem real and you have a whole you know uh, biology associated with these critters that mathematically just couldn't exist they'd collapse on their own bones and something that size it's the inverse square law i think that uh yeah square cube law square cube law so so tell us a little bit about designing an impossible biology well i mean the thing about the 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 thing about kaiju is that they are impossible the way that we think of them like you know if you have godzilla right godzilla being 200 300 feet Right. Um, just the sheer if it's built like, you know, a usual reptile, it's too big. It will absolutely collapse. Um, and and I think that that is the, you know, again, no pun intended, the oversized elephant in the room that, you know, the physics of Kaiju don't work. Um, so one of the things that I, I needed to do was to imagine a plausible way for these 300 foot creatures to uh get you know to get away with being as large as they were without completely uh just saying the the square cube law doesn't exist on this on this planet because of course it would it still has to um and the two ways to do it is to find you know i i employed an element that made it marginally marginally uh, plausible, um, which is, you know, they're basically, you know, it's not a spoiler. Uh, they are, uh, basically nuclear creatures, right? Um, and that is explained through the development of the world as that exists. But the other thing is, and this is really important, having then described how that works, I stop explaining it, right? I don't over-describe it, right? Because, as a casual writer of technical and scientific stuff, the minute you start over explaining things, that's when the nerds will come for you in the night, right? They'll be like, I, I see where you said this one thing at this one thing is just completely wrong. And how could you do that? And that just doesn't make sense. So what I do is I'm like, well, they imagine the, the one absolutely acknowledge the square cube law exists. I literally have it as part of a chapter uh, you know, the uh, one of the people at the the base on the Kaiju planet is saying to the new biologist, go ahead and say it. You're thinking it so we, you can you can say it. And the biologist says it. Square cube. Oh, what's going on? 
And uh, so the answer to that is literally picking up this huge folder of explanation, dropping it on her lap and like it's in there and, uh, and it explains it all. And then never telling anybody what's in the big folder, right? Uh, just that they know that the big folder exists. It has something to do with nuclear, organically occurring nuclear power uh, and all of that sort of stuff. And, uh, but yeah, just don't over explain it because what will happen then is the nerds who actually know this stuff will be like, well, how could this work? And then they will create and own their own explanation in their brain that satisfies them. And then they'll come visit me at a signing or something. It's like, I know what you were thinking when you said this, it's this, Blah! and they will tell me their own theory of how it works. And I'll be like, you are brilliant. That is absolutely 100% correct. And of course, I don't know. But um, but that is that honestly, that is that is the secret. Get the science we actually know right, which is not difficult. Responsibly speculate up to a point and then stop and just let the people because anybody who doesn't care about that stuff doesn't want to go into detail on it. And all the people who do care about that stuff will just generate it in their own brains rather than trying to pick apart what you said being wrong. And I, you know, because I absolutely know they will nitpick. I know that because I got something wrong in Kaiju um, uh, and I immediately heard from it. I had a, I had somebody operating a Glock and taking the safety off the Glock. And as soon as I wrote that, I was like, oh, I should check that to make sure that that's accurate. And it wasn't. There were no, there are no safeties on Glocks. Uh, and I was like, I need to change that. And I never did. So it got into the publishing. It got published. And as soon as it did, all the all the gun people were like, you know, Glocks don't have safeties. I actually put up an article on my website. It's like, yes, I know that's an error. We will fix it in the paperback, uh, which, by the way, we didn't. It's still there. It's in the paperback. It's an error. It's still the error in the paperback. I am so embarrassed, but we will eventually get it fixed. But, but that's important. They will come for you. So you try to get it as much right as you can. You know, also, you mentioned your facility with dialogue, which I think is simply awesome. And what's interesting, too, is that even as it's really fun to read and just it may, reads like lightning, at some point you, you might think people don't quite talk like this. Nonetheless, you just don't give a hoot because it is fun. So talk about that you know, modulating that little barrier between fun dialogue and real dialogue. When you're reading it, you, you might think that you all think you won't even care. It's just fun to read. But Well, I mean, this is the secret about dialogue, right? Dialogue isn't speech. Dialogue is mostly exposition that is designed to approximate speech to enough that you can get the you can convey the information that you want to convey. So, um, if we were doing speech as speech, uh, it would sound basically like I'm sounding now. Like there would be weird pauses, there would be ums and ahs while I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to say next. And in writing, that's really kind of obnoxious. So we cut all of that out. Also, there's only so much space in a book um, that you're allowed. I am contractually obliged to write about 100,000 words plus or minus, you know, 15% or something like that, right? Um, so I can't just go on, you know, and on and on and on with dialogue or anything like that. I actually have to have my dialogue further the story. Um, so all of these things uh, come into play. I mean, dialogue is artifice. I mean, all of it's artifice. Writing is an artifice, but particularly dialogue. The thing that you want out of your dialogue is that even as it is doing the thing of giving up exposition, even as it is cutting out all the ums, it still sounds reasonable-ish. Like people would actually be having this sort of conversation. There would be every once in a while a little aside or a little editorial comment um, or a little bit of humor to, to, to break things up. There would be uh, back and forth so that people could um, so that you could establish who these people are as characters through dialogue, so on and so forth. So it is actually very structured. It has a very specific purpose 
uh, in storytelling. And again, it's difficult to do correctly because, um, you know, a lot of it comes down to, um, honestly, a lot of science fiction writers um, either don't have lots of very good conversations uh, or uh, they have other things that they want to do enough to the point where they're like, no, wait a minute, I've got to do this. I think, honestly, the secret that I have, which I share with everybody, is whenever I'm writing dialogue, uh, once I'm done with the chapter, I go back and I read it aloud, right? Uh, and reading it aloud will tell you if the dialogue actually sounds like it could come out of somebody's mouth, right? Um, because sometimes when people are writing dialogue, they, they'll do these run-on sentences that have seven semicolons in them or, you know, have no respect for the idea that sooner or later the person speaking is just absolutely going to run out of breath, right? Um, and so the simple act of speaking your dialogue aloud will let you know whether or not the way that you've constructed the sentences they are speaking to each other has any sort of resemblance to how humans would actually speak. Um, so that is, you know, that is my first, um, you know, a piece of advice to anyone. And it's the thing that I, I absolutely do now, you know, and again, you know, there's, there's plus and minuses to this. I do a lot of, uh, storytelling through dialogue. Most of my characters are also, um, certainly in Kaiju, but in a lot of them are reasonably intelligent people. So they're, you know, uh, having, you know, uh, high-end conversations and stuff like that. The legitimate criticism of a lot of my dialogue is, sure, it moves stuff along, but all your characters sound the same, right? Which I don't feel is true because I know enough people who are snarky and sarcastic and, you know, do that sort of back and forth. I'm like, well, no, this sounds like all the people that I know. But I also accept that, uh, after a certain point, um, there may be something to be said of if all your people are snarky and sarcastic, um, then you have to do a little bit of extra work to differentiate them uh, from from each other. Um, so that's something that I continue to to work on as well. And like I said, I think it's a legitimate criticism of my work. I can hear the differences in my head, but uh, maybe other people can't to the same extent that I do. You know, I think, too, the appeal of that kind of dialogue is that when it's, like, really snappy and smart, people think, well, that's how I talk. I'm that smart. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so yeah. So there's yeah. kind of oh, a no, wishful fulfillment in it. Yeah, no, it's the whole it's the whole thing of, you know, uh, the snappy back and forth, the, you know, uh, you know, the way that they talked in the 30s and 40s films, right? You know, back and forth, bang, 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 bang. Um, and... I love it. And like I said, I mean, I grew up and not grew up, but my first job professionally was a film critic. So my story writing school was uh, a lot from film where there was so much um, that was conveyed through dialogue and people having that rat-a-tat-tat with each other um, just felt so good, you know, to watch it up on screen. And I was like, I bet that works uh, well on the page. But also there were other people who were doing it on the page as well. One of my favorite writers growing up was uh, Gregory McDonald, who wrote the Fletch books. And dialogue was so important to the Fletch books that if you remember the covers to the original uh, Fletch books, they were literally snippets of dialogue, you know, from, from the books itself. That told you the primacy of that sort of uh, you know, uh, that sort of communication. And, and I, there are still lines from those books that just reverberate through, through my, uh, my head even now. Um, so if that's the sort of thing that you're basing your, um, you know, writing style, at least initially on, um, then it's going to, it's definitely going to have an effect. Also too, in this book, there's the Kaiju Earth is absolutely phenomenally well built and the kaiju themselves are very interesting because they aren't the giant lizards or giant earth creatures uh, of the movie they are more like lovecraftian gods 
uh, brought to life. <laughs> you know, giant heaps of slime and squir squirming tentacles. And so that, I think, is a very interesting decision and vision uh, of those creatures. Well, and again, a lot of it comes down to the uh, question of how are you going to actually uh, make these creatures reasonably conform to physics, right? Um, so they aren't going to be, they're not going to be Mothra, right? They're not going to be 300 foot moths or the things that, uh, you know, based on the biology that we have uh, on earth per se. Um, so you, you sort of build them differently. The other thing is, again, um, I don't over describe the, uh, the kaiju in the book. So, you know, uh, so a lot of that is left to the imagination of the reader. Again, this is a criticism that I've gotten. It's like, why didn't you describe them? I was like, because your brain will make them much more gross than I will. And that's awesome. But, um, I mean, but that's part of it. But again, it's the, again, the whole world building of it, right? Um, you've created this earth where these creatures exist. Um, how do you build that world around them like so for example uh, it's got to be much warmer right um, because just keeping them uh, alive is going to you know be an issue the oxygen concentration in the atmosphere is going to be that much greater uh, again so they can more efficiently exchange uh, uh, atmosphere for themselves and and things like that. With the increase of oxygen in the atmosphere, that means the world is much more flammable, right? Um, and the, and what's the effect of that? And so on and, and so forth. I mean, this is kind of the I mean, but this is the fun of the world building. Is is like if you just you know if you just have these creatures and you plop them into the world as they exist. That's great fantasy. Godzilla is a great fantasy. But for what I was doing, I wanted to actually, you know, put some of the science in into um, the science fiction. And this is where, you know, having at least a little bit of background uh, in science uh, was useful. Uh, and also knowing people who know uh, science is useful because, you know, you can, again, re responsibly extrapolate and make that world building feel right you know it's like these kaiju not only are going to be creatures in themselves but they're basically entire ecosystems they have animals that live on them as parasites as commune uh, commensal creatures and so on and so forth and the parasites are going to have parasites and so on and so forth and just building that out again within the constraints of a, of a book that has to be a certain length um is is a heck of a is a heck of a lot of fun it's fun to write that stuff i mean yeah up to a certain point where you're like okay i can't nerd out on all this you know research that i did or world building that i did because i actually have to tell a story now uh, but it's still fun to do it, it really is funny you know it's interesting too uh at the back of the book, you refer to the Kaiju Preservation Society as a pop song of a novel. And sure. I think that's a really interesting approach because the craft in it is consummate. I mean, as you read it, all you're doing is reading and enjoying that novel and, mm -hmm. and enjoying the skill with which it's written and the entertainment value. And it strikes me that you know, writing is often associated with lofty ideals, you know, enrich your social life or enrich your vision of this. But the, it's, a, you know, it's a lot easier to write something that, that enriches someone's life as opposed to something that entertains the heck out of them so that when you're reading it, you could never... I mean, when I was in that book, I you could... It'd be hard to take it out of my hands. And even if you did, I'd still be in that world for a few minutes. Sure. Well, but that's the whole thing, isn't it? I mean, uh, I wrote it because I needed a book like that at that particular time. It come out of 2020. Uh, you know, there was a pandemic. There was the U.S. election. It was all that mess. I'd been trying to write a book that was meant to be serious and weighty, and it just wasn't working. Uh, and after a certain point, I was just like, I need a vacation. My brain needs a vacation. Oh, look, Kaiju Planet. Let's go. Um, so for me, that was kind of the thing, but I think the other thing is, is there is, for me, there's a, there is a recognition that, 
none of this is easy. It's not easy to write a perfect pop song. I mean, you think about Brian Wilson writing God Only Knows, right? Uh, all the craft that has to go into all the understanding of how music works to elicit a response in someone, you know, uh, you know, the Beatles, you know, doing Abbey Road, you know, uh, a, a personal favorite of mine, uh, Emmy Lou Harris's The Wrecking Ball, where just song after song just builds this amazing atmosphere uh, and so on. You know, these things are, these things are hard. They feel easy, right? It's like you listen to a three minute pop song and it feels good and it just gets you into that mind frame. Um, but that's the whole point. It's supposed to feel easy. You are supposed to feel that way. That was the point of, of the thing. Um, so for me, uh, constructing something that was fun uh, was, yeah, it's, it's a skill, you know, um, and it's a skill that I'm, I'm actually fortunate to have. I don't think everybody needs to write like I do. You know, there doesn't need to be, uh, you know, 15 different versions of me. There needs to be one of me, one of Nora Jemison, one of China Mieville, one of, you know, um, Arcady Martin, any of the, any of the people who in, in speculative fiction, um, because that gives us, a you know, it gives us a smorgasbord of writing to a joy, no matter what mood uh, that we're in. But, you know, the thing I always tell to people, and I'm both very, you know, snarky and cranky when I say it, uh, anytime someone says, well, what you do is really easy. I'm like, okay, do it. If you think it's easy, you go ahead and do it. You think humor is easy? Do it. You think, you know, doing the page turning thing, you know, is easy? Go ahead and do it. It's not as easy as people think it is. It is actual uh, real craft. Uh, and I'm really good at what I do. Now, that said, um, I don't want to over egg the pudding. I mean, I wrote this thing in five weeks. So, you know, partly just because it was just like I was having so much fun writing it that I was just, you know, banging it out as, as, as I went along and I didn't overthink it. I was just like, yep, this works. Let's go. Uh, but at the same time, but that is also the result of 30 years of professional writing of knowing how to build story, knowing how to build uh, dialogue, knowing how to uh, insert humor, all the sort of, all of that. It's, it is, this book is in many ways a culmination of what my skill set as, as a writer is. Um, and like I said, you know, uh, it's not as easy as it looks, but there's lots of stuff that's not as easy as it looks either, so. Well, it's the old story of the uh, overnight success that took, 20 years to, to yes. happen. Yes. Know, one thing, there is, a, this book is not entirely without seriousness, and I think that any book, particularly in the science fiction genre, that makes us, uh, that includes monsters, makes us ask the question, well, at the end of the day, who are really the monsters? And, right. and you know, the kaiju in this book, they're like giant extremely dangerous pets <laughs> in, in a sense you know i i look at i have two little pugs that are very small and cute but i think if if that pug was as tall at the shoulder as i am it, it would be a fairly different experience oh yeah no no i mean think about think about your cats yeah i mean your if your cat got much larger than it was you'd be dead you yeah. know, uh, as far as it goes, I wouldn't, I personally wouldn't say the kaiju were pets, although I can understand that, but I absolutely, but they are absolutely, they're wild animals and they have absolutely no concern about the humans in, in that, in that world. And I think that that's the thing that's kind of interesting about them is like in the book, we are in their territory, in their territory, they are the top of every, not just the food chain, but the environmental chain, uh, anything. Um, and we don't rate. It's like it's like why you on a day-to-day -day basis don't notice termites, right? The only time you notice termites are when they actually go out of their way to eat your house. But the rest of the time, they're just part of the world that you exist in. We are termites to the kaiju, right? Uh, and I think that that's kind of a fascinating 
way to look at that, you know, because humans are always about their own ego. We are, the, you know, the universe revolves around us. Um, so here's a place where we aren't the most important thing. Not only are we not the most important thing, um, the what is the most important thing barely registers the fact that we are there. I mean, with respect to having um, serious themes in humor, um, absolutely, I think that is a thing that e that is easy to do. The thing about humor is that if you always just hit the hammer button, you know, the, the humor button, um, it wears out, right? Um, it's very, very difficult um, to just hit that single emotional note over and over. The book always works better if there's a dynamic range. It also works better if there's a point to the funny stuff that you're doing. Uh, I'll give you another example of a different book that I wrote, which is called Red Shirts, right? Um, where there was, uh, you know, it was very farcical, you know, like I said, these, um, you know, bit characters in uh, a fictional world realize that they are bit characters in the fictional world. And, you know, they're like, we don't want to die. Um, you know, they don't want to be red shirts. And how do they resolve that? But along with that was the more serious idea of this is your life. This is your one and only precious life. And what, in fact, are you going to do with it? And some of the characters in that book uh, realized that up until the events that uh, transpire in the book, they were basically sleepwalking through their own life. And that's very easy and it's very convenient to do that sort of thing. But when it's done, it's done. And at the end of, and at the end of that road, when you know there's no more road anymore that you've come to the end, um, then you look back, is, that, is this the life that you wish you would have led? Um, and that's actually a really kind of heavy um, idea. And, and like I said, within the context of the story, I tried not to like over egg that. I wanted people to come to that, uh, you know, aspect of it just in the reading itself, just as with Kaiju and other stuff. I want them to pick up on those more serious themes on, on their own. But they're there, um, not only because it's better for the story that they are there, but because these are the things that I think about as well. Right. Uh, I'm a, you know, I use a lot of humor, but I, you know, sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night at like three o'clock in the morning and my brain is like, you know, one day you're going to die. Right. Like this whole existing thing, you're going to stop doing that. How do you feel about it? And I'm like, it's 3 a.m. Why, why do I have to think about it now? It's like there's no better time. It's either this or, you know, uh, think about your bills. So. Um, so, yeah, you know. Even though I'm funny and amusing, I have those deep thoughts, and every once in a while I want to address them. The new novel by John Scalzi is the Kaiju Preservation Society. Thank you for joining me, John. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.